Now, as we get to this seventh chapter here, we see that the wall now has been built. And we find that they begin now to protect the city of Jerusalem. The temple is being rebuilt, and many of the homes had already been built inside. They're still clearing out the debris. But now it's necessary to protect the city because the enemy that tried to thwart and hinder the work of rebuilding the walls is still the enemy. And he'd like to get inside the city walls and destroy the city. Now, will you notice here, and I want to read verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when the wall was built, and I had set up the doers and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Now, what has happened here is this. All of these are appointed, actually, for the protection of the city, a very practical and very necessary protection, and also a spiritual protection. And I want you to notice that when it says porters, who they are, actually the importance of the porters were that they were the watchmen. They were the ones that actually took care of the wall. That is, they were the ones that were on guard duty all the way around the wall, letting those inside know what was going on on the outside. That is, if there was an enemy approaching or there was danger out there. And they watched both night and day. It was a 24-hour job. And therefore, the standards were high. But we're going to find out they were not enforced as they should have been. And they are not to be indifferent to who comes and who goes inside the city wall. Now, here is something I want to say, and I trust I'm not misunderstood, because it has been greatly, I think, abused today. We are told that we are not to be indifferent to who comes and goes in our fellowship. Because we're not to fellowship with all that are professing Christians. And I want you to notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.11. We've been over this already, so let me just remind you of it. And I'm reading 1 Corinthians 5.11. But now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that's called a brother be a fornicator or covetous, are an idolater, are a railer, are a drunkard, are an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. Now, may I say to you, that's a little different today. We give doctrine top priority. And very candidly, I think that's all important, that those who deny the inerrancy and the deity of Scripture, I don't think we should make them our brothers and certainly we can't fellowship with them in the sense of worshiping. But Paul's not dealing with the doctrine when he says here, with one who's a fornicator, what about that man in the church or that woman in the church that won't deal with the sin that's in the life? We had a preacher in Southern California that got in trouble. It was a morals chart. He moved to another area, and he had the same thing happen. And yet the people were warned about it. It just about wrecked the church. In fact, it almost wrecked two churches. There is today such a low standard. We've emphasized doctrine, and that's good. But what about morals? What about conduct? 
That's the thing that Paul is emphasizing here, and the thing that actually is all important. And the thing he mentions here now is covetous also. What about the man that you have that's money hungry? What about the man that's not honest in his dealings? Do you have fellowship with him? May I say to you, this is the thing Paul condemns. I'm wondering if we don't have a lopsided view today of this. Now, we are told John put it on the basis of doctrine. And when you put it on the basis of doctrine, you've got to understand that it's the entire body of truth. And in Second John 10, he says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. Now, the doctrine here happens to be the whole body of truth that the apostles held. That's what John's talking about. Now, today we find that there are groups that do not hold all of the doctrine, but they do hold the inerrancy of Scripture and these other things. That is, the deity of Christ and the fact he died for our sins, which is important. Now, does that mean, because we are not to have fellowship with them, does that mean that we're to sit in judgment on them? Of course not. And that is the difficulty. Paul says to a young preacher, 2 Timothy 2.19, The Lord knoweth them that are his. And you don't know and I don't know. But God does. And we must be careful, that's all. And this idea today, to sit in harsh judgment on our brethren because they don't do like we think they ought to do, is entirely beside the point and, of course, very wrong. Now, we are to understand that fellowship is worth too much to be frittered away by mere sentimentality. That is the thing that we need to recognize. And for a personal gain. Now, a great many men will shut their eyes. I know that there are certain laymen will shut their eyes to sins in the ministry. Ministers will shut their eyes to the sins of laymen. This gets right down to nitty-gritty, doesn't it? He says you're not to shut your eyes to it. You're just to break fellowship with him on that. You're not to sit in judgment on him. Who called you and me to be a judge? Now, it just simply means the same old thing we've heard in our country today. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And therefore, we're to be on our guard. Now, therefore, they had porters to guard the wall. They were very important. Now they also have singers. Do you notice that they are mentioned here? And the singers. And I'm not in that group, I can assure you. The spirit of praise is the spirit of power. We're going to see Nehemiah saying just a little later, in fact, in the next chapter, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the spirit of praise is the spirit of power, therefore. And that means that we should be a rejoicing group of folk today. And that is something that's absent today in the church. The church is not made up of a happy group of people. Oh, I know that they laugh at a good story and they enjoy a banquet, but they don't enjoy Bible study. You ought to stand where I stand and have stood for many, many years, and I can tell who's enjoying it and who's not. And it's always interesting to me who's not, because they're the ones that 
generally turn out to be the weak sisters that become actually your troublemakers in the church. They do not enjoy it, you see. And Paul says the mark of a spirit-filled Christian was this. He says, "...be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit." speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, you notice it's speaking to yourself. Well, I can speak, but I can't sing. But you sing in your heart. And my friends, if I've got any music in me, it's still there. It's never come out. And I guess it's in my heart. But my heart sings at times. I want you to know that. I wish I could sing. That's one thing I'd like to do. And it means to psalm here are to praise. It means, oh, how sweet the name of Jesus is. It means to him. Him here means ascribe perfections to deity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. My, how wonderful this is. And this was to bring joy into the life. I was sitting in the study of the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Salem, Oregon, some time ago. And there was a little motto on his wall, and I copied it down because I liked it very much. And this is the way it reads. Joy is the flag that is flown in the heart when the Master is in residence. How wonderful that is. I tell you, when you're walking in the will of God, and you're in the center of his will, and you're having fellowship with him, I tell you, you're going to have joy in your life. These are wonderful things, friends, that you have here. And this made for a wonderful city to have the porters and the singers. And that's not all. You have Levites also. They were appointed. Now, they were ministers. Now, God calls ministers. And the writer to the Proverbs says, in Proverbs 18:16, a man's gift maketh room for him. And how true that is. Now, if God has called you to be a minister, he'll make room for you. He'll give you a place to serve. And that, I think, is the real text. Now, will you notice here in verse 2 that I gave my brother, Hanani, and when he says brother, it doesn't mean blood brother. Because if you'll recall, at the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah was serving in the court, of Ahasuerus, why one of his brethren from Jerusalem came. That means one of his fellow Israelites came. And that's who it is here. And he was the one that brought the report to him. And he was one of the leaders, apparently, in Jerusalem. And he'd come down on some sort of state business. And so now, since Nehemiah knew him, he says, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. Why? because he was an educated man and had been to seminary. Is that the way your Bible reads? Well, mine doesn't read that way either. Notice this, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. He was faithful, not educated. I wish I could get that over today to a whole lot of seminary students. There's a feeling today, and don't misunderstand me, we need an educated ministry. That was the beginning of the school system in this country was that they wanted to have an educated ministry. And that's necessary. But you can go to seed in that direction. And there are a great many men who apparently lack character in the ministry, but they're educated. And someone has made the statement, 
You know, you can educate a fool even, and that is true. And there are many educated fools in this world today, not only in the ministry, but everywhere else. But the thing that God wants is faithfulness. It's required in a steward that a man be found faithful. That's the thing that's important. Can your pastor depend on you? (laughs) Can God depend on you? That's the important thing. Can your fellow Christians depend on you? Are you faithful? And education's nice if you're faithful. It's not worth anything if you're not faithful. Now, will you notice here? And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them, and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch, and every one to be over against his house. Now, the entrance was to be watched in the daytime, and watchfulness was for all at night when they didn't know what would happen. Each one was to watch at least his own household. And so God holds us responsible for at least our household, that which is next to us. And the Lord Jesus said, what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. And today that should be the attitude of the believer. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not builded. They were not all completed, you see, at this time. And a man might get interested in building his own house and forget to watch. And you see, the whole spirit of this thing, the way it had gone up, was the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. And my, how we need both today in the Lord's work. Now we begin at verse 5 with a genealogy. And I want you to notice this genealogy because it's very important. I'm not going to read it because I'd have radios turned off all across this country. But it's worth reading, and I'm going to recommend to you that it be read. It's the same genealogy that we had in Ezra, the second chapter. Why in the world would God waste so much printer's ink giving us the same genealogy? Well, I'll tell you why. The Word of God says the righteous are in everlasting remembrance. God says, I know these folks. I just want you to know that I know them. He's put their name down one place, and he's got a duplicate. He made a carbon copy. They tell me that in Washington and some of the bureaus there that they make about 15 carbon copies of everything. Well, God does pretty well along that line himself. He gives it to you once, and he gives it to you twice. He says, now, you may not find these names interesting, but I do. I know these folks. They're mine. And these were the ones that they were in God's book. This is just a leaf out of God's memorial book. God says, I record their names. They were faithful. These are the ones that have been found faithful to God. Now, you're going to find quite a few of these in the Scripture, Here in the third chapter, we had one. And you go way back to Genesis, the 49th chapter. What a list you have there, those 12 sons. We had it in 2 Samuel of David's mighty man. You have it in 2 Chronicles, the first 10 chapters. There are nothing in the world but names. And then Romans 16 is made up of a roster of names. Hebrews 11 is names. 
names of folk that have occurred again and again in the Word of God. Now, they are names to you and to me, but God remembers them. How wonderful it is. Now, let's just get down in this, and we won't go too far, of course. And my God put into mine heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register, the genealogy of them, which came up at the first and found written therein. These are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity, and those that had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away, and they came again to Jerusalem and to Judah, every one unto his city. Now, here is the list of these. Here it is. I do not know who they are. Now, their names are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. I drop down to verse 17. My eye just glances down, and it says, The children of Asgad. Now, who in the world was Asgad? Well, friends, Asgad was a man who was carried away in the Babylonian captivity. And his children went down there, his family. Well, in 70 years, and by this time, quite a few more years had gone by. I suppose that over a 100 years has gone by. And his family's been multiplying, and quite a few of them. But this is one of those, and every one of these 2,322 could say, I'm related to Asgad. I'm an Israelite. And somebody says, do you know you're an Israelite? And he said, I sure do. <laughs> oh, Asgad was my great, 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 great grandfather. And I know who I am. May I say to you, there are children today that they say, I think I'm a child of God. I hope I'm a child of God. Well, Fred, don't you know whether you're a child of God or not? Do you know whether you're trusting Christ? And he says, he that hath the Son hath life. Now, do you? He says, if you have the Son, do you have him? Have you trusted him? Well, then you have life. And, well, I don't want to boast. You're not boasting. You just believe in God. And if you don't believe him, you're making him a liar. God says, he that hath the Son hath life. Now, do you have life? You have it on what authority? Because he says so. These were written down. This son of Asgad would say, look here. Here's where my name's written down. I know who I am. Well, now, but there's some that couldn't. Verse 61. Oh, I passed over that genealogy, didn't I? And these were they which went up also from Telmila, Telharisha, Cherub, Adon, and Emmer. But they could not show their father's house, nor their seed, whether they were of Israel. They didn't know. They said, we think we are. We hope we are. We try to be. But my friend, that's not going to help you. You're going to have to know it. And they couldn't show their genealogy. And what happened? Well, the fact of the matter is, they're put out. Notice what happens in verse 64. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but was not found. Therefore were they as polluted, put from the priesthood. They could not declare it. And you not only need to be saved, you need to know you're saved, my friend. Now, will you notice 
hear that somebody says, but how did they tell it? Well, there was the Urim and Thummim in the breastplate of the priest, and that told God's way. That was the discerning of the priesthood. Do you have eternal life? Well, my friend, you just go to the Word of God and find that out. That's important. And so we have here verse 73, now the last verse of the chapter. So the priests and the Levites and the porters and the singers and some of the people and the Nathanims in all Israel dwelt in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their city, back in the land now. This man, Nehemiah, has done a tremendous thing, but he's not through. Now notice what he does here in the eighth chapter. We're told that all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spoke unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Now, Ezra, who was a scribe, is called in. And they are going to have a great Bible reading. Notice this that follows now. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. Now, you'll notice that only those that were gathered together with understanding, that could hear with understanding. That means they had a nursery, and they didn't have any crying babies. And I do not know where the nursery was, but maybe Nehemiah took care of them. I don't know. But I tell you, he made adequate preparation, you may be sure. Now, in verse 3, we're told that Ezra read therein, that is, in the book of the law of Moses, before the street that was before the water gate. Now, you'll recall that when we went through the gates of Jerusalem, the water gate represented the Word of God. Now, they put a pulpit by the water gate, and there is where he read. And he read from the morning until midday, before the men and women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive under the book of the law. Now, I do not know where I could get a congregation that would listen to me read from the Bible from the morning until midday. They always had difficulty of listening for 45 minutes. And I think, though, that some had the impression that it was like the two ladies walking out of the church after the morning service. One said to the other one, says, my, that preacher certainly preaches a long time. And the other said, no, he really doesn't preach a long time. It just seems like it's a long time. Well, a great many people thought 45 minutes seemed pretty long. But notice here, he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive under the book of the law. Now, the reason for that was that many of these people during the 70 years of captivity had never heard the Word of God. They hadn't heard it read, and this was really a new experience for them. And we're told here now, Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. 
And we're told beside him stood Mittathiah and Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand. On his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malchiah, and Hashem, and Hashbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshulam. These were the men that stood with him. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now, they stood for the reading of the law, and that meant they stood during that time. They didn't have a soft, cushioned pew to sit in. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. First of all, his praise to God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, this means they all went down on all fours, and they just, with their forehead, they touched the ground. And that's the way that they worshiped in that day. Now, here we have another list, and I'm not going to go through this. Maybe I should, because these were very important individuals. And Jeshua, and Benai, and Sherebiah, and Jamin, Akub, and Shabbatai, and Hodijah, Maaseiah, Kalita, and Azariah, and Jezebel, Hanan, and Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. Now, here is something that I want you to notice in particular, because it seems to me that it's very important. They had out in this great assembly of all the people that were gathered there by the water gate inside the walls of Jerusalem, why, they had these men stationed out in the assembly. And this man, Ezra, the scribe and the priest, he would read a certain portion of the law. And when he stopped, then each one of these men who was stationed out in the congregation, they would say to their group, did you understand what was read? And most of them nodded their head and said, yes. And maybe some put up their hand and said, now, we didn't quite understand what he meant when he talked about this doctrine and that doctrine and the other doctrine. We're not quite sure. What did he mean? And so this man would explain the reading of the law to them. Then Ezra would read another section, and then they would stop, and then they would have the folk out there ask questions, and it was explained to them. Now, that seems to me to be very important. I wonder today if in our churches we had a great Bible reading we just read. That is, somebody would stand up and read. Then you'd have people stationed out in the congregation, and maybe one man would take this section, another man the other section, and so on. And then they would read in the law. And suppose they read the first chapter of Ephesians today. And they started out, and you wouldn't have to go very far there until you'd encounter that which has been a real problem to the believers today. According as he hath chosen us in him 
before the foundation of the world. Now, I think when somebody would read that to the congregation, you'd read about five verses, or six verses there, and stop. And then the man or the teacher in that section would say, Now, did you understand that? And I think all the hands would go up. And they say, Wait a minute, what does Paul mean when he says, Chosen in him before the foundation of the world? Is he teaching the doctrine of election there? And what is the doctrine of election? Is it something that the Democrats and Republicans would be interested in? And the very interesting thing is, I don't think either the Democrats or the Republicans or any other party would be interested in that today. They don't seem to manifest very much interest. Spiritual thing, politicians don't, but a lot of people are today. We're in the midst of this spiritual movement. I don't know where it's going, but it's sure on its way. And I trust it'll lead to revival. This one here led to revival. And what happened was that these people that had never heard the word read to them, I can well understand they'd have many questions. And so they just took all the mourning for that. And they did that. And what they did was to cause the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. This is remarkable, by the way, friend. They would ask questions. they say, I didn't quite understand that last verse there, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now, that would, I think, clarify a great deal for people today. And I'm not sure but what we're having that kind of a movement on today. That's the reason that we go through the entire Bible, and that's the reason we take up practically every verse and deal with it. I believe personally that's the way it should be done. I do not think this business of taking a text and then going everywhere and preaching the gospel, I don't think that's quite it. And that is the reason that there's been a lot of lack of interest in the Word of God, because it's been handled that way. And I'm not sure but what just to take a text and to just take a theme and launch out into the deep, with no thought of ever coming back to the Scripture and explaining it, is really doing what the writer in Scripture says, handling the Scripture of God deceitfully. Now, he intends for us to just take it up as it is and attempt to explain it as we go along. And that's exactly what they're doing here. And that is the thing that I think God wants us to do. Now, that's not all. Here's a great lesson for us today. We can talk about methods all you want to. We hear a great deal about the psychological approach. And my great many go out on that tangent. And there are other tangents that they're going out on. I could mention many things. The scholarly tangent of going out. A man, in fact, he's a president of a seminary, some dear saint, I think, said the wrong thing to him, said, my, you know, we just listened to Donna McGee going through the Bible. And this man, in a very casual manner, says, well, that's one way, I guess, of doing it, but it's certainly not the scholarly way and the proper way to do it. Well, may I say to you that that's the way the Lord's leading us to do it. And I believe that that's the scriptural method. Here it is. You want to know the scriptural method? This is it. 
They caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. We need to understand what's in the Word of God. God's speaking to us here. Now, here's some more. Verse 8 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Now, I have occasion to go into many places and speak. And I've heard the Scripture read in just about every way that is imaginable. Every now and then, some brother gets up and reads it with great emphasis. He reads it as if it's the Word of God he's reading. But too often, some fellow gets up and he ducks his head, and nobody hears him past the third pew to begin with. But he gets up and he reads it like this. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Well, may I say to you, I don't like that because that's not doing it the way God said they did it back there. And this is apparently the way that he wanted it done. And Nehemiah puts in that little word, so. These men didn't have a course in homiletics, public speaking, but they believed it was the word of God. And they read it like it was the Word of God. That's the way Ezra did it. So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly. Make sure people understand what you're reading. And they gave the sense. They gave the meaning of it. And they caused them to understand the reading. Now, I understand that that is what God wants done in church service. And until that's done, I don't care how loud the soloist sang, and I do not care how sweetly the organist played, and I do not care how flowery the message was. My friend, if the Word of God was not read distinctly, and if the sense of it was not given, and if it didn't cause people to understand, then it was of no avail whatsoever. This is the thing that's all important, friends. Now, will you notice, verse 9, And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now, this was a great emotional outburst. My, these people here, very candidly, they hadn't heard the Word of God. Many of them, first time they ever heard it in their life. And the Word of God here so moved them, and they were moved upon emotionally. And they wept, but I think they wept for joy. Will you notice here, Nehemiah is very careful to say, Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet. Send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. That's social service for you. They talk about the social gospel today. My friend, if the Word of God means something to you, you get something from it, it'll make you want to go out and do something nice for somebody. The thing of it is that it'll make you want to do something for God. They tell a very whimsical little story out here in California. You know, they Talk about the Boy Scout doing his good deed, helping an old lady cross the street. Well, they say down here in one of these retirement areas of the senior citizen, 
there a man got up a new type of vitamin. And a little old lady helped two Boy Scouts across the street. My friend, I tell you, the Word of God is a vitamin that's going to make you do your good turn. And I don't know what it'll be, but you'll have to determine that. But it'll cause you to do your good turn. That's what the Word of God does. Now he says here that you're to send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. Do something for the poor. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you remember Paul said to believers, then he gave the very source of power was joy. Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. The secret is prayer, but the source of power is joy. And he said that they were to rejoice. You know, the Word of God is to make you joyful. And that's one reason that my feeling is that there's something wrong if the church service doesn't make you happy, doesn't bless your heart. Over a period of 21 years in downtown Los Angeles, we had the privilege of having what was said to be the largest midweek service in America. We went anywhere from 1,500 to 2,500 people during that period. Now, I always went out and shook hands. I began that custom to go out on the front porch and shake hands with the folk as they came out. And I could always tell whether the Bible study had been a blessing or not. Sometimes they'd just come out and sort of mumble and shake your hand. Well, you know that night it hadn't really been a blessing. Then somebody comes out there just radiant and they shake your hand and just, oh, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. Then you know that it accomplished its purpose. Now, my friend, the Word of God's to bring joy to you. That is the thing that, remember John, when he wrote his first epistle, he said that was one of the reasons that he wrote it. He says, verse 4 of chapter 1 of 1 John, he says, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. And he just doesn't want you to have a little fun. He wants you to have a whole lot of fun reading his Word studying His Word. Now, the study of the Word of God ought to bring joy into your life. And friend, face up to it. If the study of the Word of God is not bringing joy into your life, something's radically wrong with you. You ought to go to God in prayer and say, Lord, I want your Word to bring joy into my life. And whatever there's between, any cloud between, I want it removed that I may experience the joy of the Lord when we study the Word of God. And that will make church going a real happy affair. Have you ever seen a crowd going to a football game? Oh, my, it's like a holiday, rejoicing. You ever see them coming into church on Sunday morning? Boy, what a duty, what a burden. And there are a lot of folk there with burdens, but that burden should be lifted in the service, and they should come out with joy in their hearts. Now we're told here, all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. I hope this Bible study makes you happy. A missionary way down on the field, discouraged. Word of God's bringing joy to him. And here is a home, I tell you, about to fall apart. And what's happened there? Word of God's brought joy. Here's a man had bitterness in his heart against me. He listened to some others that are my enemies, apparently. 
But the Word of God began to work in his life. May I say to you, it'll have an effect on you. And now we are told here, on the second day, verse 13, were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests, the Levites, and Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. They came back for another service. I never pay much attention. Anybody say to me on Sunday night, Oh, this has been a great day. I've been greatly blessed today in a conference. I look for them on Monday night. If they don't come, I wonder what they meant on Sunday night. Now, will you notice, we're told here that they found written in the law, which is commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. Verse 16, so the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths. You know what they're doing? They're obeying the law, obeying the Word of God. And, my friends, one thing to read it and study it and have it bring joy to you, but the joy is going to end unless we begin to obey it, and it has its way with us. My, this is a wonderful chapter. I told you, this is where the through the Bible began, was right here with Ezra, and taking the Word of God, the law of Moses, Now, friends, we come to the ninth chapter of Nehemiah. You will recall that I said in the study of Ezra that there were certain great ninth chapters, and they all have to do actually with revival. There's the ninth chapter of Ezra, the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, where we are today, and then the ninth chapter of Daniel, and all of these deal with this very important subject of revival. Now, probably I should qualify what we mean when we use the term revival because of the fact that, again, this is one that is, I think, greatly misunderstood today by a great many folk. And probably I should spend just the time saying a word about it. It's a technical term that means to recover life and vigor. It means to return to consciousness. And it refers to that which has life, and it ebbs away, and sometimes even to death, and then there's no vitality, and then it revives. Actually, the resurrection of Christ in the 14th chapter of Romans, verse 9, Paul says he was revived. And that is a good use of the term, you see. Now, obviously, the word revival is confined to believers. It means they were in a low spiritual condition and they were brought back to vitality and power. And here in this chapter, that's the way that we're using it. However, I'm sure that many of you have discovered that we've broadened it out in other places and we actually mean when people are coming to Christ that that is revival. But I think that those coming to Christ and the reviving of believers go hand in hand. They belong together. You can never have a great period of soul winning without God's people being revived. Now, we want to look at that because that's what we have here. Many of these people, as we saw in chapter 8, they had never heard the word of the Lord. They'd been in captivity 70 years. They had no access to the Word of God. There was no one there to read it to them. 
Now, when they got back in the land and the wall was completed, Nehemiah had a great day and time of reading the Word of God. And it probably went on for quite a period, how long I do not know. And he had Ezra, who was a scribe, the one who had the Word of God. And they built a pulpit for him there by the water gate. And he read. And the people wept. Largely, they were weeping for joy. But the point was that they are bound to show emotion at the reading of the Word of God. That's my reason, candidly, friends, for wanting to get the Word of God out. It honestly is not important what I say. It is important what the Bible says. And the Spirit of God can take the Word of God, and if what we're saying is in conformity with it, and he can apply it and bless it to hearts and lives. And that's the reason we share so many of these letters, because we see what the Word of God's doing. I'm amazed at it. In fact, the matter is, no one is any more surprised than I am when I get a letter of a certain tape we've made and somebody's turned to the Lord. I ought not to be surprised because the Lord said he'd bless his word. Now, this had a great effect upon the people at that time. Now, it led to certain things for them. They recognized how far short they had come of God's standard for them. And as we saw back in the book of Ezra, it had an effect on Ezra himself, a great concern. And there cannot be any revival apart from the Word of God. We need to recognize that. I've quoted this before. Dwight L. Moody said he felt the next revival that would come after his day would be a revival of the Word of God. And I wish today I could get the evangelists to pay more attention to the Word of God and not to methods or sentimental, emotional appeals or to an appeal to bigness, because that is not necessarily a token of revival at all. And we need to recognize that we need to have a return to the Word of God. Now, notice what it did for these people. We are told here, chapter 9, verse 1 of Nehemiah, Now in the twentieth and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now they confessed their sins, primarily their own and that of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord, their God, one-fourth part of the day and another fourth part, they confessed and worshiped the Lord, their God. Now, this reading of the word of God caused them to confess their sins and then the iniquities of their fathers. And we today need to recognize and I think this present generation that's been very critical of my generation, and rightly so, that now, if they are coming back to the Word of God, they are not going to be critical. They're going to start confessing how much we fail. And they'll also first confess their own sins. They're going to recognize that. You and I are in no position of confessing sins until we confess our own. 
And if you don't feel like you've got any sins, then, my friend, you need then to come to the Word of God. Because the thing that they did, one-fourth part of the day, they read in the Bible. Then they did something about it. They confessed their sin. And that is exactly what John says. You can't bring God down to your level. There are a great many trying to do that. And you can't bring yourself up to God's level, where you say that you've reached the state of perfection. Now, if you do, you deceive yourself. I didn't say that. John said that, and the Holy Spirit of God said that. Therefore, you can't bring him down, and you can't bring yourself up. If you read the Word of God, you will see that you're a sinner. And when you do, what do you do? If we confess our sin, and if we do, that means to agree with God, to agree with God's Word, not attempt to rationalize or offer excuses, but call what we're doing or what we're thinking or what we have done, call it what it is, S-I-N-S, sins. And when we do that, we've confessed our sin. Now, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. And you will recall in the upper room, he washed their feet. Why? Because that's what he's doing right now at God's right hand. He's washing feet. And when you and I come to him in confession, he takes our feet. However, sometimes it's our mind. You can't walk down our streets today. Your mind gets dirty. Your eyes get dirty. Your ears get dirty. And I think sometimes even walking some of our streets, your feet get dirty. And your hands get dirty. Now, we go to him in confession. Now, he told Simon Peter, if I wash you not, you have no part with me. Now, there are a great many people attempting to serve God today that have not walked in the light of the Word of God. If we walk in the light, as he's in the light. And it's not how you walk, but where you walk that's important. And when you walk in the light of the Word of God, you're going to see you're coming short of the glory of God. And when you do, you're going to go to him in confession. If you don't, he says, if I wash you not, you have no part with me. That is, you'll have no fellowship with him. Therefore, these people spent one-fourth of the day reading the Bible, spent another fourth of the day confessing. Now, I feel very much gratified when we went through the epistle to the Romans. I don't know what it was, but I've received, I suppose, a dozen letters from folk that have confessed to me, but I'm not the one to confess to. But they confessed to me they'd been talking about me, and one even said that he had hated me at one time. I don't know whether I shared one of those letters with you or not, but it was a very ugly thing that he said that he'd done. Now he's confessing it. Well, he didn't need to write me about it. I personally think you ought to go to the people you talk to and get straight in there. But be that as it may, apparently the Word of God was having effect. And if it has an effect on you, it'll cause you to go to God in confession. Now, that's what these people do. Now, friends, that's the road to revival. There's no other road. This is the way. Then we're told here that after the confession of sins, and I think it was private, I think they straightened out what they did. You remember that Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost didn't bring in revival by getting up and confessing how he had denied the Lord Jesus. 
And by the way, that was a private interview. Dr. Luke and Paul both tell us that he appeared to Simon Peter privately. You know why? Because that had to be straightened out. But it was a private matter. You don't take a bath in public. At least I hope you don't. They almost do it today on TV, but I don't think they ought to do it. But they're trying to sell some kind of soap that seems to be a little better. and Just soap gets you clean. That's the main thing of a bath. And we go to him in confession privately. Simon Peter confessed privately. I'm sure he got straightened out. But on the day of Pentecost, he pointed to that group. He said, you did it. Man, he's not making any confession there. May I say to you that the important thing is the confession of sin privately. And it's just a wave of hysteria when you hear all this public confession of sin. That's not revival, and it certainly has not brought revival in our day. And we need to recognize that we cannot disassociate ourselves from others. And you find that Nehemiah here says that when they stood up, they confessed, and they said, we have sinned. That's the important thing to note here, that it was that kind of a confession. Now, revival, therefore, can be and should be and begins as an individual affair. A great many people have thought Finney was on the fringe of fanaticism. I used to think that, but reading him, I don't think so. He said a revival is not a miracle. He said any individual. Meet the conditions. You can draw a circle, get inside that circle. Say, Lord, begin a revival. Let it begin in this circle, and that's where it'll have to be. After all, Elijah was a one-man revival, and there have been men that have met those conditions. Now, the conditions were met for revival, and we find great blessing came. And I'm going to hit high points now in this chapter. Then stood upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua, Benai, and all this list here. And what did they do? They said to the people, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now, friends, confession will not lead to some public demonstration where you get up and call attention to yourself and tell people what big sinner you are. And that makes you pretty big in the eyes of folk, I found out today. No, what does it make you do? Why, the people stood up after they'd made their confession. The Word of God had been read. They made their confession. They stood up and praised and exalted God. And that is the thing that we need today. We need to exalt God in our services. We need to praise Him. A friend of mine, in fact, it's Dr. Rodmacher up here at the Western Baptist Seminary in Portland, was telling that in their midweek service, it got pretty boring hearing the same prayers every week. So they decided that one Wednesday night, instead of anybody praying and making a request, asking God for something or turning in a grocery list, that they just praise God. And he said, you know, it almost brought revival. Well, that's the thing that we need today. It will bring in a great revival when we begin to praise God and exalt his high and holy name. And notice what they said here. They said, Thou, even thou art God alone. 
Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that's therein. Thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Have you ever stood on the seashore and watched those great waves pound against the rocks? And has it caused you to turn to God? Have you ever stood in a forest? Here in Southern California, we don't have great forests. When I went up to Canadian Keswick and walked out into those northern woods, oh, how thrilling it was. And I went out there each morning. The vaulted ceiling of those great tall trees was my temple. And Mike had worshipped God. He's a creator. He made all those trees. He made this universe. And not only did that, Thou art the Lord, the God who didst choose Abram, and brought us him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees. Now, I'm not going over this, but they praised God because of the way that he led their fathers in the past. How he chose Abraham, how he preserved him in the land of Canaan, how he brought them as a nation out of the land of Egypt, how they were led by miracle through it, and how he took care of these people and preserved them. And they praise God for that. Have you ever thanked God that you live in this country? My grandfather, apparently on my father's side, lived in North Ireland. He was Scotch, but an orange man, and he lived in North Ireland. Well, they were fighting over there. I mean, this fighting that's been carried on in our days, nothing new. They were fighting then. My grandfather got tired of it. And he came to this country. I thank God he came to this country. And so I thank God for my grandfather. You know, because I don't want to be over in North Ireland. Now, I don't care about how people feel about, you know, the old sod over there. You can have all of mine. You can have my four-leaf clover and everything else is connected with it. My friend, may I say to you, have you ever thanked God that he's brought you to where you are today? Well, we ought to thank him for that. These people did. Now, they go back and also confess the sins of their people. Somebody needs to confess the sins of the country today because, very candidly, none of the candidates and no political party and none of the statesmen and educators, none of the leaders today are confessing that we've sinned. <laughs> they confess somebody else's sin, but no, they have not, and they're not confessing the sins of our country. Listen to this, verse 34 now. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, now our fathers kept thy law and are hearkened unto thy commandments and thy testimonies wherewith thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdom and in their great goodness that thou gavest them and in the large and fat land which thou gavest them before them, neither turned they from their wicked works. Look how God has blessed this nation. Our forefathers that came to this country, all oh, they had faults I wouldn't want to go back to the Puritan days. But I want to tell you, they certainly believed the Bible was the Word of God. They certainly, in that day, they founded this nation on morality. And you and I have got a lot to thank God for. But they sin. We sin. How much longer will God let us continue? Now he goes on to say, verse 36, Behold, we are servants this day. And for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we're servants in it. They recognize the judgment of God is upon them. Will the judgment of God come upon this nation? 
I don't think we can escape it, friends. Notice verse 37, "...and it yieldeth much increase under the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies, over our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress." And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests, we seal unto it. We put our seal to it. We are turning back to you. What kind of covenant have you made with God? I hear people say today they won't even sign a pledge to give because they might not be able to fulfill it. Well, may I say to you, you rent a house, they're sure going to make you sign it, and you borrow money, you're sure going to sign for it. I don't know why people can sign up for everything else in this life, but they're afraid to sign up with God. My friend, if you mean it, sign up with him. Oh, how many people have failed him, and he's gracious. But if we mean business with him, he means business with us. Now, friends, as we come today to this final study, we saw last time that they read in the Bible, read in the Old Testament, then they confessed their sin, and then they met in a great praise service to God. And I got so carried away with praising God because he's a creator, I forgot to just say that as you go on through this chapter, they thank God for the redemption that came to them when the Lord led their people out of Egypt. And those are the two things you and I ought to thank God for. He's the creator. This is his universe. And we ought to thank him that he saved us. By the way, have you thanked him today that he saved you? Have you told him that you love him? Don't wait till Sunday morning to go to church to sing the doxology right where you are right now. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because he's the creator, he's given me everything that's material and physical. I thank him for it. He has saved me a sinner, and I thank him for it. How wonderful it is. Now, we saw that these people signed on the dotted line. They made a covenant with God. Have you ever made a covenant with him? Have you ever promised him anything? You ought to. And a great many people ought to do that. You have the list of them here. And believe me, the list is just written down here. You know, these people now are bringing to the Lord their first fruits. And you have here the offerings. They hadn't been bringing them. Now they're bringing them to the Lord. This new group of people are coming. When I hear today a church that's always complaining about not having enough money, and I hear any Christian organization, that'd be this broadcast. And for goodness sakes, let's don't blame people for non-support. Let's go fishing, as Simon Peter did, for the Lord Jesus to get the tax money. Let's go out and win some more folk to the Lord. Get more sheep. Then you can share them, by the way. And my point is, I don't think you ought to support anything. I don't care what it is. Unless it's a blessing to you. Unless it's opened up to you a great avenue of service. We ought to support the place and the thing that's giving us our blessing. Where do you get your blessing, friend? Wherever it is, that's what you ought to support by the way. My, this is very practical. This is Nehemiah, you know, great layman that he was. Now we find here another great list in chapter 11. And they are listed here. 
The others made a covenant with God and kept it. Well, these are just willing people. (laughs) They're going to do what God wants them to do. Listen to just the first few verses. And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. They cast lots. One in ten would stay in Jerusalem. And the one who got the short straw, I guess, stayed in Jerusalem, or the long straw. And the others, other nine went out and dwelt in other cities. Well, I guess there could have been a lot of complaining. And say, oh, me, why did God let this happen to me, you know? But notice, and the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Well, may I say to you, a lot of people wanted to move out to the suburban areas, as you can see even in that day. But those that were willing to dwell at Jerusalem, they just thank God for it. Just to be willing, friend. My, the Lord records a willing heart. Notice this. Now, these are the chief of the province that dwelt in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah dwelt everyone in his possession, their cities to wit. And then here's the list given. Oh, God takes note of the willing hearts of people. Isn't that wonderful? Now, that brings us over to the 12th chapter. And what do you have in the 12th chapter? Another list, you say. Right, but who are these? Well, these are those that are just praising God. <laughs> just praising God. I used to go visit a lady that was going blind and in a wheelchair part of the time, right here in Pasadena. She lived here in Pasadena. I was pastor here years ago. And this dear lady, you say, needed to be comforted and helped. Well, to tell the truth, I don't think she did. But I did need help in those days. I was a young preacher and I went by just to listen to her. You know why? My, how she could praise God. And here's a list of those praise God. I imagine she's in this list somewhere now. I don't have the latest. God keeps that record, but I'm confident that he has those. Now we have the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem. They've now had all of this take place. We're told verse 27 And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites out of all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, psalters, and with harps. My, they had a great time there. And the sons of the singers gathered themselves together both out of the plain country round about Jerusalem from the village. So they brought together all the musicians. They had a great rock festival. Now, somebody's going to say, wait a minute, preacher, you ought to be careful saying that. No, I don't mind saying it, and I'll tell you why. I heard a man say the other day, because there were others criticizing the rock festivals. Oh, he said, I believe as a Christian in the rock and roll festival. Everybody looked at him in amazement and said, what do you mean? Well, he says, I believe in the rock festival, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And I believe in the roll, too. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Now, that's the kind of rock and roll I'm talking about. That's what they had here, you see. These are the ones inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life, and they're now going to meet and dedicate the walls of Jerusalem. 
Now, Nehemiah brought up from all over the land the people for this dedication, because Jerusalem was the city where the temple was. Verse 40, So stood the two companies of them that gave thanks in the house of God, and I and the half of the rulers with me. Now he lists the priests. They were all there. Verse 43, now will you listen to this? Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Now, strangers passing through that land, visitors, tourists, they heard this great shout of praise and joy. And he said, what in the world's going on over there? And when you hear that sort of thing, you always want to go. I know I was up north in the Oakland area and went by that big stadium that is there, and they were playing some. I don't actually know who's playing there, but they were having a baseball game. And I want to tell you, one place there, somebody understood, hit a home run, and what a shout went up from that place. And I thought at the time, my, I'd like to be over there seeing that. That must be an exciting game. That's a natural reaction, you see. And I thought at the time, my, if where I'm preaching, if I could get that kind of a shout to go up so that the whole community would hear it. I have a notion a lot of people who come around won't know what's going on. You know, one of the reasons they pass us by today in the churches is because they think we're a dead lot and a boring lot. And the interesting thing is, nine times out of ten, they're right. Oh, there ought to be more joy of the Lord in our services today. That is the thing that's needed. Real joy. There's nothing that has a power, a joy. That actually, we said the other day, and we're going to see it when we get to Philippians, that the very source of power is joy. And that's what, you remember Nehemiah said? Joy of the Lord is your strength. And if you are a crybaby Christian, you're not going to have much of a testimony at all. Dear lady told me one time, she said, my husband is unsaved. And she says, not McGee, I just can't reach him. And she began to blubber right there. She said, I speak to him at breakfast of a morning and I weep and tell him how much I love him and I want him saved. And then again at supper, she does the same thing. You know, I got thinking about that. Would you want to have breakfast and dinner with a weeping woman? I don't know about you. I wouldn't. I don't think I'd enjoy that. Wouldn't help your indigestion. And I have a notion that fellow was pretty sick of it. So I told her after that, I said, look, I have a suggestion. Why don't you just quit talking to him at breakfast? And dinner. Oh, she said, you'd mean quit witnessing? I said, yes, quit witnessing like you're witnessing. And let's witness another way. Start praying for him. And stop weeping before him. Because that, you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We need to keep that in mind also. Now we come to the 13th chapter. And again, we see the demonstration that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And it's the price of Christian liberty, and it's the price of Christian freedom, too, by the way. Now, will you notice, 
Nehemiah, somewhere in this interval between here and chapter 13, went back to his job in the palace at Shushan. You see, he'd only asked for a leave of absence. Now, after he had been away, I don't know how long, maybe a year, maybe two years, he asked for another leave, and he came back to Jerusalem. Now, what did he find out? They weren't keeping that separation that they should have. On that day, they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. That's way back in the 25th of Deuteronomy. Now, they read that, and they decided that the thing to do was to obey the Word of God, because they met not the children of Israel with bread, with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass, when they had heard the law, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Now they had in their crowd a whole lot of the Ammonites and Moabites. And they weren't obeying God in this. Now they put them out of the land. Now we read, verse 4, And before this, Elisha, the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. Oh-oh, here was the high priest through a marriage of his son or daughter to the house of Tobiah. In other words, the high priest himself disobeyed God in this important matter. Now, what has happened? God had forbidden this, that they were to intermarry with these. And he'd given them, I think, a very humorous illustration of it, a real cartoon, by the way. He said, you should never hitch together, plow together, an ox and an ass. You see, an ox is a clean beast, ass is an unclean beast, and you're not to yoke them together. And a believer and an unbeliever shouldn't be yoked together. I know a man in business today paying an awful price for a partnership that he made before he got his eyes open. May I say to you, it's true not only in that, but in marriage today. Now, will you notice what happened? Why, he had prepared for him a great chamber, where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, and the vessels. In other words, they had storage places in the temple, and they had a big room. Now, they no longer bring the offerings in there. They cleaned out that room, and they put on a nice shag rug and put in some lovely furniture and a king-sized bed and invited old Tobiah in. And, in fact, they told him he could have it any time he wanted it. Now, what's this man Nehemiah going to do? He's returned now. Well, will you notice this? But in all this... Time was not I at Jerusalem. Nehemiah had been there, that wouldn't have happened. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. I came to Jerusalem, and I understood of the evil that Elisha did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me so. Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. You know, I love this man, Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, we're going to get rid of Tobiah. He's not going to be in the house of God. And the Lord Jesus commended the church in Ephesus because they always examined those who said they were apostles and were not, and they put them out. And so this man, Nehemiah, he went in, got his suitcase, pitched it out the window, said, you're not staying here anymore. You're not going to get free rent here. 
Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers. They fumigated the place, you see. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. And we put that room back for what it was originally intended in the service of God. Well, he didn't stop there. He says, and I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. Every man had to get a job that was a Levite that served in the temple outside, working the field. And God's service was neglected. Now, I believe that today many a ministers being asked to do too much. Many a man's having to neglect his study because the church wants him to be an administrator and be everything else. He needs somebody to take this other responsibility. And I love Nehemiah, and I think now you'll begin to discover why. You know why? Well, because he said the preacher ought to have a raise. I always like men like that, and I hope you don't mind that, because that's exactly what Nehemiah said. And he said, you're going to bring in the tithe that belongs here and see that these men are taken care of that are in the service of God. My, I love a man like that. And God approved it, by the way. Verse 14, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for the offices there. He said, just record this, O Lord, and God did. Here, here it is in the Word of God. Now, he found out they were doing something else. They were breaking the Sabbath day. And what was happening was this. In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sheaves, lading asses, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also, therein which brought fish and all manner of wire and sold it on the Sabbath to the children of Judah. See, they came in from the seacoast. They brought fish. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah, said unto them, What evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? Now, they're under law, you see, and they're to obey God in this matter. Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us, upon the city? Yet ye bring forth wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut. I charged that they should not be opened till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants said I at the gates that there should no burden be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now notice what happened. Well, these men said, you know, that fellow Nehemiah, he did it one or two times, but the gate will be open again. So the merchants and sellers of all kinds of ware lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. Then I testified against them and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If ye do so again, I'll lay hands on you. From that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. You see, Nehemiah closed the gate. And they came up there thinking it'd be open, and it wasn't. And they just waited around. And Nehemiah, he crawled up on top to see if they were there. First Sabbath day, they were there. He came the second Sabbath day, climbed up and looked down, and there they were. So he said to them, look here, you come here again, I'm going to come out after you. Well, they didn't come back anymore because they knew he meant business. Now he found out, in those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. Verse 23. Now, what does he do? Well, he contended with them. 
He cursed them, and that doesn't mean he's swearing at them, but he pronounced a curse upon them, and smote certain of them, plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters or your son. Now, this man used extreme measures, but it needed that, my friend. And then, I tell you, you see, revival will always lead to reformation. When you have a revival, it's going to clean up everything that needs cleaning up. The only way today that the problems that face our nation can be solved right now, and I say it rather categorically and dogmatically, is by a revival that'll come to the people of God. Nehemiah concludes by saying, verse 29, Remember them, O my God, because they've defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers, and I appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed for the first fruits. Listen to him, his final word. Remember me, O my God, for good. I'm sure God remembered him for good. And I remember him that way. I hope you do. I hope you love Nehemiah, great layman of God. 